Welcome to the Synapse Nips podcast, where we explore the power of health and healing. On this podcast, we will be talking with health experts, professionals, and leaders about hot topics in the world of health. Whether it's tools to help you flourish, successful stories to inspire, or tips to optimize your health, Synapse Nips is here to help you take the first steps towards living your best life. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Troy with Dr. Josh and Marquis. We're going to be talking some thyroid health today, which I'm actually very excited about because it is a very important gland in our body. And a lot of people will will talk about uh, different symptoms, and the thyroid is connected to so many different things that we experience in our in our world right now. And it is such a sensitive organ, actually. Uh, to the environment that we're living in that uh, I think it's very important for us just to talk a little bit about the thyroid. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's start with just off the top of your head, was a thyroid due uh, for the most part and as far as uh, the function of the body? What have you got to talk to Josh? Yeah, I, I tell my patients that the thyroid and the thyroid hormones, they're kind of like little spark plugs in the cells that help, you know, force your body to make energy. And this is why hypothyroid symptoms are often low energy symptoms. You're tired, fatigue, weight gain, hair loss, constipation, issues with energy production. Those are kind of the primary hypothyroid symptoms. And they're super common because like you said, the thyroid is affected by so many other things. And a lot of times people will go in, get their thyroid checked and be told that your thyroid's normal. And then um, they end up here because they don't feel right. And uh, they don't suspect thyroid because they were told it was normal, but we oftentimes find thyroid dysfunction. So what, uh, have you seen that first of all with your patient base? Yeah, I was just telling you that. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for the setup. Um, So it's, it's super common for medical doctors to only test a marker called TSH. And the reason for that is a TSH is a hormone called thyroid stimulating hormone comes from your pituitary gland. It's the thing that's sent from your brain to tell your thyroid, Hey, make, make more hormone, make more thyroid hormone. And if your TSH is high, it means that your brain is essentially yelling at your thyroid to make more stuff. And if your TSH is low, it's trying to, you know, quiet it down and, and not make so much thyroid hormone. The assumption medically is that if your TSH is normal, then well, maybe your thyroid's fine too. But we see all the time, because we don't just test TSH, we test the hormones, we test a few other things, we see all the time that TSH can be fine, but then you find other problems. Yeah. And what today, uh, during this uh, podcast, I'd like to go through some of the, the how the thyroid works and the different nutrients are involved, and different things that can disrupt this function, because uh, although it's true TSH is the gold standard marker for thyroid disease, mm-hmm. You can have dysfunction and not have a disease process yet. And so this is where some of the confusion, I think, with uh, the medical community is, is that someone comes in and doesn't feel right. Well, there can be thyroid dysfunction, but not a thyroid disease process yet. Mm -hmm. And so getting the full thyroid panel uh, actually assessed is very important. So what else do we look at when we look at a thyroid panel? So we look at the TSH. We look at T4, which is inactive thyroid. So the thyroid gland will make T4, and then uh, we look at T3, which is active thyroid. So T4 will get uh, converted to T3, 
And T3 is really what plugs into our cells that, uh, the spark plugs, as you said, that gives us, uh, the, the spark to, to start the process of having that cell, uh, have energy to work. There's also free T4 and free T3. There's also a brilliant design, which is like a braking system with the spark plugs called reverse T3. Now, the half-life of reverse T3 is very, very fast, so a lot of doctors won't even get it because they say it's a useless test. But it's a very valuable test when you can get that in conjunction with a lot of the other markers. And so when you look at the patterns and the ratios, you can see if there's a problem with converting T4 to T3. Is there a problem with over-converting to reverse T3? Is there a problem with making T4? Uh, and then um, uh, is there a problem with uh, just the thyroid gland, the TSH, which is actually the brain's part uh, as far as how it regulates the thyroid? So those are the different levels and all the different things that can go right or go wrong depending on uh, the lab work. And then we also look at the antibodies, the TPO uh, antibody and the TGA antibody. So these are very important immune responses if you're making antibodies against part of your thyroid process, then that's going to be a uh, marker of some level of disturbance. Now, that is an immune system problem, not a thyroid problem yet. So you can have antibodies and the thyroid is still working. So that's technically called pre-Hashimoto's, but it can still disrupt the process of a normal functioning thyroid. So antibodies, getting those checked uh, at least once or twice uh, in the initial process is very, very important. Yeah, I just had this conversation yesterday with somebody that she went in, um, and she's in her 20s. She went in, and her thyroid uh, antibodies were elevated, but didn't um, have a lot of other markers off for the thyroid. And they said, well, you're probably fine. Come back when your thyroid stops working. Yeah. Pretty much, right? <laughs> And she, Thanks, Doc. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> she came to me and said, okay, well, this doesn't seem right. And it's, it's right. It's not. I mean, if you, we can still do a lot for the immune system to lower the ten tendency for the immune system to attack and chew up your thyroid. Because that's essentially what happens is you break down your thyroid tissue when you have Hashimoto's, when you have these antibodies high, then eventually you can lose the capacity to make thyroid hormone. Yeah. Let, let's uh, discuss, uh, there are essentially eight factors um, that cause us to make the antibodies, to cause the autoimmune reaction. So do you want to go through uh, those eight factors yeah, that we look at? Let's do that. Yeah, that, we should say, too, these eight factors are not necessarily exclusive mostly to, to, to just thyroid autoimmunity. Yeah. A lot of these overlap into other types of autoimmunity like celiac disease, rheumatoid arthritis, MS, you know, you name it. There's a lot of them. Yes. Yep. So our list here, our first one is stress. And we talk a lot about stress on this podcast, well, don't we? Well, <laughs> because stress really impacts your health in a negative way. And uh, stress is the number one thing that uh, sets off a lot of autoimmunity um, or kind of sets the environment for that to happen. So specifically uh, chronic stress, but uh, even really acute stressors that are just high magnitude, high amplitude. Amplitude stressors, just really harsh events that occur in life can trigger an autoimmune. Um, but the sneaky one is the chronic stress, that low, steady chronic stress. And that, we've talked about this on a past podcast, that doesn't just mean stressful life as far as uh, your job or uh, your work relationship or your at-home relationships. Mm -hmm. It could be 
uh, sleep disorder. That counts as a, as a stressor too. So anything that disrupts your ability to handle or manage stress can actually contribute to the problem. And many people will know that if they eat a certain way or if they eat too late, if they don't sleep, they're more irritable and the, and can't handle the stressors that life throws at them as well. So that stress response is huge for the, for the number one reason. Yeah, ultimately the stress in the brain is triggering both a, a, a hormone change, like a stress, like adrenaline or cortisol, these hormones, and then also some, some uh, nerve changes that affect negatively the immune system's ability to regulate. Yeah. So then, right, the immune Absolutely. system starts to just, autoimmunity is just your immune system accidentally targeting your own body tissues when it shouldn't. Yeah, it's, it's confused. So a confused immune system, think about when you get confused in life. When you're overworked and you're undernourished, underfed, uh, and sleep deprived. So that's the true for uh, our actual immune system as well. And our immune system um, gets overworked because of infections and inflammation. Yeah. So that's, that's primarily what we want to guard against. Yeah. What's number two on the list? Low vitamin D. So vitamin D, I think a lot of people think of vitamin D in terms of bone and bone health. They do. And that's not wrong. Vitamin D is required to absorb calcium to help both bone health, but it's vitamin D is more of a hormone, so it does a lot more than that. Yes, and it's a major hormone that our immune system requires. So low vitamin D is something we find across the board with most autoimmune. And um, I do remember about 25 years ago uh, looking at things like MS and um, they the early research was uh, fascinating because they said it acts like an autoimmune, but it's not really an autoimmune. They were kind of confused by it, but they said one thing we know for sure is that there's this line in the United States, right about the level of Atlanta, Georgia, where if you live above that line, you're 70% more likely to get MS. If you live below that line, you are not more likely to get MS. Well, they eventually found out it was because of vitamin D and sunlight exposure. And so there are certain people that uh, they just aren't as effective at converting sunlight to vitamin D. And sometimes you just don't get out in the sun. And if you live in Canada, where I grew up, uh, Minnesota, where I am now, there are seasons where your skin just does not see the sun. Even if you're outside in the winter, the sun is not strong enough because of the tilt of the earth to even make the vitamin D effectively. You right. could be outside all the time. This time of year, it's January here. Yes. I mean, so not that you'd want to be outside when it's 20 below like it was yesterday. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, even if you're outside, you don't always get it. That's that's probably the, the, the biggest, most common deficiency that we see on labs is vitamin D deficiency. Yes. And now we see vitamin D deficiency pretty much worldwide, regardless of region. A lot of that has to do with some of the research on people uh, using and overusing sunscreens, actually. So although uh, sunburns are not good, we don't recommend you get sunburns, we do need the sun for vitamin D. So when we put things on there, and a lot of these high-block sunscreens that are going on kids can block vitamin D by up to 90%. So it's important to, to take into consideration that the kids and adults need the sunlight too. We just don't need sunburns. And so the more you can stay hydrated with your skin and be out in the sun and avoid a sunburn, but actually get sun, um, the better. I, I try as much as possible to get natural shading, uh, recommend natural shading for my, um, um, 
patients, whether it be hats or, or whatever, but still get a good 20 to 30 minutes of direct sun exposure. Uh, tremendous difference in how that uh, uh, affects your vitamin D. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next one. We have hormone change, and we alluded to this a little bit with the stress response, but there's more than just the stress hormones that, that can trigger thyroid autoimmunity or autoimmunity in general. Yeah, and this one by itself is not usually um, a tr trigger mechanism. There's usually the vitamin D or some other level of dysfunction that goes with this, but we see commonly Hashimoto's or thyroiditis um, coming on with pregnancy or after pregnancy and then menopause. And it's a change in the hormone status that seems to trigger uh, the, the mechanism or, or the autoimmune uh, reaction within the body. So th that's just one to be uh, aware of. A lot of times after having a baby and uh, getting pregnant, then we'll see uh, some dysfunction there. And I will say this, the number of people with uh, thyroid disorders, it is predominantly women and the hormone that can disrupt the thyroid more than anything is estrogen. And we'll get to environmental chemicals that mimic estrogen. But this is why women tend to have more issues with the thyroid. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons uh, is the estrogen component. And estrogen can displace the um, thyroid on the thyroid binding globulin when you're actually transporting the thyroid from the gland to the peripheral tissue estrogen can actually displace it so it's not being transported and so excess estrogen uh, uh, we know can displace the thyroid and then the thyroid if it gets displaced from the little transport binding globulin which is like a little boat think of a little six-seater speedboat and estrogen comes in and kicks out the thyroid hormone thyroid hormones job is to go attach to a cell and then have that cell function and fire more well if it gets displaced by estrogen close to the thyroid gland, the nearest cell is the thyroid gland. So you start to get this hypertrophy or the thyroid being stimulated and it actually enlarges because of the um, thyroid is actually stimulating its own gland. So that's uh, one thing we see. That's why we palpate uh, the actual thyroid as well, just to see if there's any enlargement there. But when we combine that with lab work, we get a good good insight on the potential for uh, hormones that are affecting the actual thyroid autoimmune scenario. Yeah. I want to go back to one thing you said about the the hormone change is not often the only trigger. And I think with pregnancy, we see that it's often not the first pregnancy. It's subsequent ones when the when the mom is maybe more stressed because of kids or, you know, they, she's gone through breastfeeding and hasn't replenished her own nutrients. That's where you start to set up more of a a hazard then for subsequent hormone changes causing problems. Yes, and with menopause, it's a it's a lack of estrogen or atrophic changes and the stress response that can come with that too. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you have to look at the both sides of that uh, that coin. But we do see the hormone changes in general tend to be uh, a triggering mechanism for thyroid dysfunction. Yeah. One of the best things to do prior to menopause is make sure your adrenal glands and all of your other hormone yes. systems are working and thyroid properly to handle that change. Yep, absolutely. All right, number four, um, food reactions. So this food reactions can be both, a, I would say, a direct and indirect player here because you can get specific foods that trigger the autoimmunity, but then you can also get leaky gut that is more generally inflammatory disrupting. Yeah, you can um, get all kinds of uh, food 
reactions, gluten sensitivity and gluten intolerance is by far, and celiac disease is by far the most common. But if you have leaky gut that was induced from an accident, a trauma, or stress, just like an ulcer with high stress, leaky gut is just small little holes in the digestive system that can occur for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you develop the um, leaky gut, you're more prone to react to other foods because the food particles kind of sneak through and then your immune system doesn't recognize it and has to make antibodies against it. This is one of my pet peeves on leading with food testing, especially the the blood-based food testing, because a person will go in and get food, you know, their blood tested to say, hey, do I have antibodies against certain foods? And very often in the situation of leaky gut, you're going to get a boatload of different food allergens, you know, showing up antibodies to even foods that you don't even hardly eat or maybe haven't. Yeah. And so then I had that conversation like this recently. You say, well, why does this show up? Why is this? Well, taking out all those foods is not the fix. No. The, the food reactions there are a secondary impact to something else causing leaky gut. And it still might be a primary food trigger like gluten, but it could be the, the stress or, or basically everything else we're talking about. Yeah, you've got to look at it. It's, it. it's a multifaceted approach. You can't just take that one thing and rely on it and say, oh, I did that. That didn't work. And so just by avoiding uh, foods, you might feel better avoiding the foods, but it's not necessarily uh, going to fix. No, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Yeah, because your body is going to start to be sensitized to foods that you eat frequently. So if you start avoiding foods that you're used to be eating, but you still have the leaky gut, well, those new foods eventually are going to be a trigger. Too. Yes, and I, we used to see that uh, back in the day and, and just say you will react to whatever you're eating the most of in times of stress. Mm -hmm. So really you have to manage the stress response with that. And also keep in mind that if something is not natural, man-made, we're going to say, in our food source, and there's no reason for it to be in the body, your immune system will treat that like a virus, like a bacteria, like an infection. Because if it's not innately recognized as something that should be in your body, what do you have to do with it? You have to get rid of it. It's a toxin. It's basically, it needs to be eliminated. So all these chemicals that get put in our food and there's no actual mechanism of action in the body, they, they, they just go on a stockpile of junk that your immune system has to take to the liver and get rid of. And that can get overwhelmed. That's another thing that can overwhelm your system. Well, this is why leaky gut leads to more varied types of problems. and Autoimmune too, a lot of different autoimmune diseases is that both indirectly when the immune system gets mad, it just has a tendency to, to make mistakes, but then you get an issue of of antibody cross reactions where if you make an antibody against gluten well that might go and attach to somewhere in your brain or somewhere in your thyroid or, or something like that yeah. yeah all right let's hit environmental chemicals next this is a big category but it's something that uh, unless you live in a bubble uh, you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna get this through food air water uh, anything that you take um, so let's what are some common environmental chemicals that we that we encounter so the big ones uh, that can actually disrupt our hormones are called endocrine disruptors. And so you can uh, look up a list of endocrine disruptors, but a lot of times you're going to see um, pesticides and organophosphates and different things that we actually spray our food with as the main uh, culprits with uh, uh, disrupting our hormones. Anything that mimics estrogen can potentially affect our thyroid. And so we do see um, things... Um, um, mostly in the pesticide area, but then things that are also heavy with mercury, lead, cadmium can actually disrupt thyroid quite a bit. And then we're going to talk about other chemicals when we talk about how to make thyroid that can uh, disrupt it. Uh, one of my favorite ones to talk about 
is bromide that's in bread. So white bread that contains bromide, bromide can displace iodine, which is one of the main things that can actually help you make thyroid hormones. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, fluoride, bromide, any, every, every halide that's in the, the periodic uh, table there, those, those things can displace iodine, which then can cause problems with uh, thyroid. Yeah. I remember a story, I think you told, because it wasn't a patient of mine, but it was somebody who had recently gotten mercury amalgam fillings. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, she started to get thyroid symptoms, started to gain weight, lose hair, all those classic symptoms. And I, I don't remember the exact story. Maybe there's more to it, but eventually got that out and it reversed. Yeah. Uh, that's always so she gained 30 pounds. She was a personal <laughs> trainer. She gained 30 pounds in 30 days. Wow. And then got the amalgams removed and lost 30 pounds um, in 30 days. And so she... She didn't change her diet, her routine, or anything. Mm -hmm. The only thing that changed was mercury in her teeth, but it affected her thyroid so poorly mm -hmm. that it was it's still the most obvious example we've seen of uh, of that clinically. Yeah, I always hate it when people come in and they've got six, seven, eight fillings like that. Yeah. That is, it's it's important I think to consider getting those out, but it is quite the hassle sometimes to do that. It is. I do encourage people to look up uh, biologic dentistry and um, there is a, a website that uh, will help you identify if there's anyone close to you. Um, if you yeah. look up the biological dentists, uh, it is a growing field right now. It's much, much needed. Yeah. And here in the Twin Cities, there are several people that, that yes. do that. Yep. And it's important to have a dentist like that, especially if you're going to remove those fillings. Yes. Because the process of removal, if, if the mercury touches your skin, if you breathe it in, if you swallow anything, I mean, you're getting a huge exposure. That's that's big, very problematic. One of my mentors, Dr. Myron Wentz, did, uh, he was on Dr. Oz's show and uh, showed basically measured the mercury vapors that were coming off of the uh, the teeth when you were brushing your teeth. And so they measured it right on the Dr. Oz show. It had a nice little uh, fake set of teeth with mercury fillings in there and then a sealed environment with, uh, you know, the gloves that you stick into the the container. And uh, it, was, it was a very good experiment and uh, um, it was very eye-opening when it comes to the actual amount of mercury vapors that were released just from brushing of the teeth. Especially as those those amalgams get older. Yeah. Because a lot of people have those for decades. Yes. Right? I mean, they start to break down. They can crack, they can chip, they can have issues, and then you get even more of that, yeah. that vapor. All right. Next, blood sugar changes. So blood sugar is... Well, basically people think of this as, as a problem with diabetes, yeah. right? So you have diabetes, your blood sugar goes high, and that's certainly a problem. But the regulation of blood sugar, even if you're not diabetic, can pose a big problem. Yeah, so a lot of times it's the fluctuation, the highs and lows. So if you drop into a hypoglycemic state, that's a severe stressor. So again, this kind of goes back to the stress response um, that it has. But uh, low blood sugar can drive autoimmune thyroid. And if you have, I'm going to say this, if you have autoimmune thyroid already or thyroid dysfunction, you have to make sure your blood sugar never gets too low. It has to be pretty balanced. And that's a whole other uh, podcast on, on basically balancing your blood sugar and, and glycemic index of foods. But uh, basically, if you eat whole uh, natural foods, you'll, you'll do better with, uh, balancing your blood sugar, but that is a trigger for not just Hashimoto's and thyroid, um, uh, disturbance, but, uh, also many other autoimmune. Mm, yeah. 
Uh, let's see. I don't have much more to say about that one. I think that one's worthy of its own podcast, and we'll yeah. come back to that one. Uh, you touched on this one a bit already, iodine high and low. Uh, I think it's, I want to start with one thing here that I see pretty often in individuals who are more healthy. They switch to sea salt, right? Non-iodized salt. Yes. And in our part of the country, because we don't live by an ocean, we don't get a lot of iodine from any other source. And so iodine was put into salt, you know, for good reasons in some ways too, not that I think that everybody should use iodized salt, sea salt, and all that natural stuff is good too. But we see low iodine all the time, and I think yeah. that's part of the reason. Number one nutrient deficient worldwide is iodine. Number two is magnesium. So think about that for a second. The number one deficiency worldwide is iodine. The place it gets used in the body is the thyroid. So when we say T4, T3, the four stands for four iodines. The three is three iodines. And so, uh, like you said, we don't live near the ocean, and the majority of iodine comes from the ocean. And when the, the waves come crashing in and hit the shore, they will get up in the mist and will spread inland to the farm field. So a lot of the, the, the farming communities that are close to the oceans have more iodine in their whatever food they're growing. doesn't matter. It's in the soil. It will be taken up. But the closer you get inland, and if you get into middle America, middle Canada, a lot of the other countries, you're not eating from the sea. You're not eating the foods from the sea. So our iodine gets really low. So they recognized this in um, the, uh, I think the 1950s, and started to bring iodine into uh, salt. They used salt. But the problem is, it's not in a form that's highly uh, bioavailable. So we only absorb a small percentage of that. So it's only about 10% absorbed. And a good resource on this is Dr. Brownstein, Iodine, Why You Need It. It's a great book. And um, so he discusses uh, um, just the, the need for iodine and iodide as far as uh, in our diet, but also uh, to, usually to supplement. So that's why we check it quite a bit. And there's a lot of things that displace it. One of the, one of the worst decisions they ever made was replacing iodine in bread with bromide because bromide actually displaces iodine further. So, and then if you look at uh, fluoride, it's in toothpaste, that displaces iodine. So not only are we not getting it as much from our food source, we're actually taking a lot of things sometimes daily that actually interfere with the absorption. And on our past podcast, we've talked about SIBO, which we'll probably end up doing another whole podcast on SIBO one day. But iodine absorption in the small intestine is reduced with SIBO. So we've got all of these variables that really influence our ability to actually get iodine into our system and use it. So it's a, it's a big one. So we do a test called an iodine loading test where we give a high dose of iodine and then we measure the output over 24 hours through the urine. How many of those tests have you done that have come back normal? Oh, I'm going to say... Uh, two out of a hundred yeah. that have come back normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've had one. Yeah. So it's, it's not common. No. And, and you know, we're testing people who tend to be a little, uh, you know, sick. They don't feel well. Yes. You know, so that's not a surprise, but the level of deficiency seen on that test is your body. When you do that test, you should, you should get rid of 90 over 90% of that iodine because your body will say, Hey, I don't need it. You know, I'm going to push all that out. 
but if all of a sudden you're not getting any iodine on that test, if it's, you know, if only 50% comes out instead of 90, your body said, hey, I like that. I'm going to keep a bunch of it. And we see that all the time. Well, and here's really the cool level. thing about iodine too. It's actually stored in a lot of your other glands and, and other tissues in the body. And when it gets stored there, it changes the pH of the environment of those tissues. So you are less likely to get infections. So if you have chronic UTIs or other or chronic infections within the body and you can't get rid of them, a lot of times that's an iodine deficiency that's contributed to that. And so uh, we will look at that. And that's really what that, that iodine loading test is telling us is that you're, you're really deficient in the periphery as well. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it changes it. Iodine by itself has antimicrobial, antiviral, antiparasitic properties. And so we want to get iodine and saturate our tissues with it as much as possible. And one of my pet peeves, I'm going to talk about this pet peeve, because I, I am constantly trying to educate my patients and their doctors, their endocrinologists, on iodine and how it can throw off lab tests. If you are taking high dose iodine, let's say you're, you've read Dr. Brownstein's book or followed his protocol. If you're taking higher dose iodine, TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone that they measure as the gold standard on lab tests is one of the things that helps to, to take iodine into the peripheral tissue. So your TSH is going to go up if you're on high dose, high, high dose iodine. So if you get a lab test and your TSH all of a sudden is 11 or 15, and normal, you know, you're, you want to be around 4, just to give you a, a relative uh, indicator, uh, between 2.85 and 4. If you come back at 11 or 15, the doctor's going to kind of freak out and say, oh my gosh, you've got hypothyroid. And, and if you don't have hypothyroid symptoms and you feel good, but you're taking high-dose iodine, that's just the high-dose iodine. That's why you have to get the other tests run to the T3, T4, free T3, free T4, reverse T3. So you can get the big picture again. But I'm constantly just telling patients, if your TSH is high and you're taking uh, high-dose iodine, it invalidates the test. It's not accurate information if you're just doing the TSH. And it's not saying that something is wrong with your thyroid on no. the test. It just means that the way they run the test, it makes it look wrong. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. No. Because it's, and it's a good thing. It's actually even more of a sign that you're still iodine deficient because <laughs> your, your brain is actually sending out TSH to transport it to the peripheral tissues. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. All right. Last but not least, infections. Infections. <laughs> infections of uh, any kind can induce a... Uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis uh, or th- autoimmune thyroid. So it can be bacterial, it can be parasitic, it can be mycoplasm, it can be viral. Viral, I think, is the most common. Mm-hmm. So it is uh, something that uh, we're always trying to look at. Uh, why did this happen? What set it up so that we can then address how many of these eight factors uh, need to be addressed to get to the root cause? Yeah. The infection part is tricky because there's two ways to think about identifying and clearing infections because everybody has everybody has infections. I, I talk about Epstein-Barr, the cause of mono, quite a bit with my patients. 80% of people have that virus, and so I mean, that's the majority of people walking around have that. Mm-hmm. Most of those people don't have mono or haven't even gotten symptoms of mono, and most of those people won't have any problems with its reactivation. But there are several people, and we, and we see this a lot, where that virus becomes reactivated, either from a stressor or a weak immune system or something along that line. The problem there then is twofold. How do you how do you control the virus, but then how do you get your body to an environment where you don't have that problem again? 
Yeah, exactly. And and the environment can really influence the outcome of how impacted you are by infections or chronic infections. Mm-hmm. Just like we just talked about with iodine. Iodine is one of many things, but uh, recreating or, or getting the environment reestablished is crucial for a lot of um, chronic infection individuals. Well, this is why, thinking of COVID, this is why people who have comorbidities fare worse with COVID. Yeah. yeah. You know, some one person can get COVID and be asymptomatic or have very little symptoms, and another person, unfortunately, can pass away. And the difference there often, not always, but often is their environment and the inflammation and everything else going on that's going to set that virus up to be able to wreak havoc. Yeah, you want to have peace of mind about infections, COVID, or any infections moving forward. Improve your internal environment. Get healthy on the inside. That that will help without. It doesn't matter what infection comes by. We'll figure out the uniquenesses of that infecting uh, agent. But it's always been true that the people with with uh, comorbidities or their internal environment don't do as well uh, when it comes to immune system. When the immune system is involved, your immune system becomes confused, overworked, or downregulated when it's got to clean up all these other things secondary to the comorbidities. So get healthy on the inside. This is why when you have a viral infection, one, symptoms are very often similar. So a virus, regardless of what it is, is going to cause a very, very consistent type of inflammation response. The benefit to us is that then even if you do get sick, the things that we would want to give to support the immune system are going to be effective pretty much regardless of what the virus is. Vitamin D, we mentioned vitamin D, high-dose vitamin D, vitamin C, some of these other nutrients are very involved in in keeping infections and and viruses at bay. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Do you want to talk about the factors that affect thyroid function? I do want to talk about the factors. (laughs) Good, because that's next on the list. (laughs) So um, let's say that everything else that we just talked about is taken care of. You don't have stress, your vitamin D is fine, all these other things. There are still nutrient issues in particular that can negatively impact your ability to control and produce thyroid hormone and and the conversion and all of that. So what are some of your favorite things here? So uh, let me go through the nutrients that are needed to make thyroid first. Uh, For T4, we need iron and iodine. Those are the two big ones. Then tyrosine, zinc, selenium, and selenium is very, very important for thyroid function on a couple different levels. Uh, Vitamin E, and then B2, B3, B6, vitamin C and vitamin D. That's all. That's it. That's all we need. Uh, But I want to highlight a couple there. So B6 gets depleted with stress. B6 is needed to make, uh, help convert the majority of the neurotransmitters in the brain. B6 is needed for good sleep. So that one, along with the vitamin D, which we already talked about, and then the iodine, which we already talked about, think about our lifestyle and how much our lifestyle impacts just those three uh, nutrients right there. The one thing too that will deplete B6 is hormone changes, especially birth control use. Yeah. Right? And so taking birth control, even though you're trying to control hormones, is going to drop B6. There's actually some birth controls that have B6 in there just for that very reason. So yeah, and there's actually a lot of literature showing how birth control uh, and thyroid uh, autoimmune, um, uh, there are some correlation there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other ones I want to discuss, uh, there's a common denominator here. We talked about SIBO blocking the ability to absorb iodine. With Part of the SIBO scenario is low stomach acid. And I see a couple things on here that uh, zinc and iron in particular 
you need proper stomach acid to absorb those uh, two nutrients. So uh, proper stomach acid is very important. Vitamin E is a major antioxidant of the cardiovascular system is very much depleted um, with in cardiovascular diseases. So uh, it becomes very important. Uh, tyrosine is also an amino acid that requires stomach acid to absorb it properly. Zinc is, a, is an interesting one because not only do you need the stomach acid but it's the thing that helps you make stomach acid. Yes, so you, yeah. can, you can get into this <laughs> rock in a hard place situation where if you don't have zinc, um, you can't absorb it very well because you don't have stomach acid, but you can't make the stomach acid because you don't have zinc. So we supplement with stomach acid to get people over the hump for that. Yeah, and zinc, just like iodine, when zinc gets into your cells in the periphery and everywhere in your body, it is it is actually even more important than iodine at uh, fighting infection because the, the majority of the intracellular mechanisms to fight off infection is zinc dependent. And so, uh, and, and a lot of times to get the zinc into the cell, you have to have enough magnesium to do that. So again, what are the two most common nutritional deficiencies worldwide? Iodine and magnesium. So a lot of people uh, who run into zinc issues, also you need to look at their iodine and magnesium levels. Yeah. The iron is another thing that's, I think, under under assessed through typical medical routes. Uh, yeah. you know, medically, there's something run called the CBC, a complete blood count. And that's looking at your blood cells, your red blood cells. And what the assumption is, is that if, if the red blood cell number goes down or if they get too small, it can be from iron deficiency. What's not typically checked that we check for is the actual level of iron in the blood because you can have normal red blood cells and still have iron deficiency signs that are impacting your thyroid. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll go through a few other factors that can inhibit the uh, production of the thyroid uh, hormones, T4 in particular. We've got uh, stress, infection, trauma, radiation, medications can impact that. Fluoride, we talked about already, is an antagonist to iodine, and the different toxins like pesticides, mercury, cadmium, lead. And as we age and you um, go into menopause as well, a lot of lead can be liberated from the bone, thus affecting the thyroid. So that's another mechanism there. And then autoimmune, like celiac, all of those things can inhibit the ability to make the, the actual T4 um, thyroid. So to convert T4... To its active form, T3, that's a T4, T3 conversion. And sometimes we diagnose people with T4, T3 conversion disorders. There are two key uh, minerals that help with that. And so um, those are that is zinc, again, and selenium. So that process requires zinc and selenium. Both of those are in the first uh, category to help make the T4. So make the T3, make the T3 and then the convert it to T4. Oh, I see. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So selenium is, uh, is one that kind of slips through, uh, sometimes. And I like to tell people if you just consumed five Brazil nuts a day and actually digest them properly, that's enough selenium to actually help with the T4, T3 conversion. And, uh, you'd be surprised how much extra energy people can get when they have this problem just from eating five Brazil nuts a day. I think it's important to note too that this conversion doesn't play, take place in the thyroid. Yes, right? good this point. Place, this takes place uh, elsewhere, and so the if the health of those other tissues where this conversion takes place is also important. All right, next uh, is one of my favorite ones because I love to get into discussions with uh, endocrinologists about why testing this <laughs> reverse T three and reverse T three. I'm going to say it this way: reverse T three 
increases or gets increased when you have stress or trauma. And I'm going to use trauma as, as the example. If you're in a car accident, that's very traumatic to the body. If you're in a state of shock, what happens is brilliant. Your brain uh, causes the T4 to be converted into reverse T3. Reverse T3 then goes and binds to your cells. And it's like a shutdown mechanism. It blocks the regular T3 from activating that cell, the spark plug. So it's like putting a cap on the spark plug, basically. And so what it's essentially doing is blocking you from using the body's energy for that cell, the muscle muscle group. Essentially, what it's asking you to do is recover from the trauma. Mm-hmm. So now all of your immune focus and brain focus and everything is on healing from the traumatic event that you just had. So it's a brilliant design. And the problem, though, is with chronic stress or traumas, uh, low-calorie diets, inflammation, toxins, infections, liver and kidney uh, dysfunction, and then certain medications, again, can also induce that slowly over time and that, therefore end up blocking the, uh, the uh, activation of your good thyroid. And we find found many times high reverse T3, and once we improve their stress response and improve their diet and, and got them balanced that way and started uh, reducing their inflammation and, and toxin load, we've seen a tremendous uh, results with their actual energy, but also with how the thyroid's functioning. Um, there are a couple other things that can actually help with the, your peripheral cells sensitivity to thyroid hormone. So not only do you want to improve thyroid hormone numbers and function, but also how receptive are the cells to receiving the thyroid. And that is depend upon zinc. Again, so you guys see how important zinc is. Very popular, very important. Vitamin A, which many of you will will know for lung and eye function and things like that, but it's actually very important for your cells to receive the thyroid. And then exercise. Exercise and movement is the third thing that helps with uh, the sensitivity of the cell to receive the thyroid. It's so interesting to me how exercise, when individuals are in a chronic health state, how exercise feels like and is very difficult to achieve, to actually do, because people feel so poorly they don't want to exercise. Yes. But any little bit that you can get is so helpful. It is. Yeah. And then you can start to see here just from some of the, the nutrients and some of the um, details of how the thyroid works, how the basics of sleeping right, getting deep sleep, feeling rested, uh, eating right, then reducing your body's inflammation, and then moving right. Just those simple things uh, can start to impact the environment internally as it relates to the thyroid. Mm -hmm. So I love when you break down uh, and get into the nitty-gritty of how certain hormones or glands work within the body. It, It all boils back to some real basics that we just have to keep getting good at or get good at, uh, get better at. This is why I think working with a functional practitioner is important in these situations because going to an endocrinologist and they have their place too. So I don't want to be bashing endocrinologists, but this is true of a lot of medical specialties is that they're specialties and they tend to be a bit siloed in their thinking. So they'll look at thyroid kind of in a bubble and say, well, the only thing that you can do to treat low thyroid is just give thyroid hormone. Yeah. But as we just talked about, there's a lot more beyond just that. And actually there's, there should be, (laughs) that shouldn't be the initial approach anyways. Yeah. And it, it, although it's more challenging, I'm going to say it this way, Mm -hmm. 
definitely more challenging. It is possible to get off of thyroid medication mm -hmm. when you fix these underlying circumstances. And in fact, um, I often show, uh, I was just at a dinner with some uh, medical doctors in town and we share information and talk about uh, um, uh, what we're seeing and everything. And I shared with them, I had a patient with Graves, which is a um, autoimmune disorder uh, for the thyroid with the uh, antibodies and uh, severe high, high antibodies. And within six months, we we're able to get the, that normal on lab work. And uh, that, that just blew them away. They didn't think that was even possible. They were told that's not possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've done that time and time again. And many doctors, medical doctors and functional medicine practitioners have done that uh, over the years. Sometimes the antibodies don't go away um, because it takes a long time. Some just lead by itself could take five years to get out of your body. Mercury toxicity, sometimes the damage is done uh, and we can't correct it. But uh, most times there's a lot that we can do to actually improve that. Okay. I think that's pretty decent yeah, for thyroid. That's, that's what we got. So yeah. thanks so, for listening. Yep. Thanks for listening. I'm going to just uh, finish off here. And uh, uh, Isabella Wentz has is, uh, uh, got some books, good books on uh, thyroid, uh, Hashimoto's that uh, um, breaks things down uh, quite well and uh, really explains a lot of what we were talking about uh, here and uh, one of our uh, colleagues, Datis Karizian, he wrote the book. It's older now, but uh, he started this. Uh, I just love the title of the book because uh, uh, when he wrote the book, which how, how long ago was that? Uh, it's been at least 10 years. Maybe yeah, 10 years ago. Um, yeah, uh, the name of the book was, oh, no, I can't remember. Well, it's a long one. That's <laughs> yeah. a, it's like, why don't... Why do I still have thyroid symptoms? If, when my labs are normal. Yeah, when my labs yeah that's normal. literally that's, the title that's, that's of the book. Yeah. 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 Why do it's I have thyroid thing. symptoms when my labs are normal? And yeah. he, he was the first to really explain mm -hmm. what we just talked about here today. So, yeah. so thank you. Take care of your thyroid and God bless. Thank you for listening to the Synapse Nips podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast. To learn more, check out our website at www.officialsynapse.com. Until next time, this has been Synapse Snips Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should under no circumstances be considered medical advice or a substitute for medical care. Any information given in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease and is at the user's own risk. Please first consult a licensed healthcare professional.